Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 1945, Britain was broke and exhausted, but the country had big hopes for the future, for a free national health service for everyone, for new housing, for better schools and more university places. What were the hopes and ideals we had then, and what became of them? I'm Ros Taylor, and this is a story of how we were promised jam tomorrow. This was a monopoly, state-owned provider, and people needed more choice. People like to think that they make decisions based on rational, but it's a loaded term. You know, that they'll carefully weigh up evidence and costs and benefits, and then they'll decide something. And that's really not how any of us decide things. It was just the notion that you know, this was a monopoly supplier and therefore that was a bad thing. In many cases, what it is, is just the, the right to refuse. It's not wanting to feel like you're trapped into just having to take whatever you're given. Every year, millions of us switch our energy supplier to try to get a better deal. It's not an easy choice to make, and that's quite deliberate. What was once simply British Gas and the local electricity board is now a choice for around 30 different companies. Confusingly, Scottish Power is actually owned by a Spanish company. E.ON is headquartered in Dusseldorf, and EDF is owned by the French state. TV ads encouraged investors to buy shares in British Gas. This is because in 1986 the government privatised the regional electricity companies, selling off their shares. All over the country, ordinary electricity users will be preparing for the 12 regional electricity companies' share offers. Got a stitch? No. No. To register for prospectus, all you have to do is perform one simple exercise. Just pick up the phone. To register, ring 0272-272-272. You could buy into what you plug into. In the last couple of years, 31 of these companies have gone bust because they were unable to deal with massive rises in the gas price. They've had to be taken over by other bigger suppliers, and that's going to cost the taxpayer £2.7 billion. Ever since the Second World War, Britons have had an explosion of choice. 
We have far more choice about the food we eat, the music we listen to, where we go on holiday, what we believe, the jobs we can do, the number of children we have or don't have, even our own sexuality. Choice has liberated women. It's made life worth living. But when we've tried to give people more choice about public services, it hasn't always worked so well. In this episode, I want to find out why. Why has a principle that's done so much to improve our lives failed when politicians have tried to improve the railways? Or give people a choice of schools to send their kids? One thing we know is that when people feel fearful and insecure, their appetite for choice diminishes. We saw that during Covid when most people accepted unprecedented curbs on their freedoms in order to stop the virus spreading. We saw it in June 1940, at the height of fears that Britain would be invaded. In July 1940, the Ministry of Information wrote a secret report on how prepared Britain was for a German invasion. From all regions, demands for more instructions are reported, particularly on evacuation and general preparedness. There is a strong desire to get non-combatants, especially children, out of the country. The demand for instructions was so strong that the government was advised that people would be ready to send their children to Canada and Australia, what were called the Dominions, if the king set an example and sent Princesses Elizabeth and Margaret to Canada. Children as young as five would be separated from their parents and have what the government described as great educational and character-building opportunities. In the same way, people accepted the need for rationing. In fact, it only came to an end in 1954, nine years after the end of the war. There is a strong fear, based on experience of past wars, that war might mean starvation. This general fear is based on a concrete, disagreeable experience many people had in the last world war of queuing, black markets, rising prices, under the count of deals and shortages. Because of these experiences, they look to rationing as the only means by which adequate supplies can be maintained. And many say, quite conscientiously, that they don't mind cuts in food consumption because they feel they are doing something to help the war. Very few people mentioned the irksomeness of the many regulations rationing involved. Shared sacrifice can be a powerful motivator during times of crisis. Our collective memory of the Second World War tells us that stoicism was what won it, that if we could keep calm and carry on, it would all be okay. I talked to the historian Lucy Noakes about the special pride the British have in putting up with stuff uncomplainingly. Stoicism was definitely part of the story, but I also think that's complicated because some of what we have to go on is how people remember and, of course, how people remember how they felt about something at the time, how any of us do this, is kind of shaped by how it's been represented and talked about since. So lots of stories of stoicism since the war, I think, mean that people are perhaps more likely to remember stoicism as a kind of key emotional reaction during the war. But when does stoicism become fatalism? You don't achieve big improvements in society unless you believe things can change for the better. But as we saw in earlier episodes of Jam Tomorrow, in the decades after the war, there was a growing belief that the state didn't always make the right choices on people's behalf, especially when it came to housing and schools. It was easy for governments to blame councils for big, intractable problems, for shoddy housing and poor schools. And it wasn't just the Conservatives who were disillusioned with them, as Neil Kinnock pointed out in 1985 when he attacked militants' control of Liverpool City Council. I'll tell you what happens with impossible promises. You start with far-fetched resolutions. They're then pickled into a rigid dogma, a code. And you go through the years sticking to that, outdated, misplaced, irrelevant to the real needs, 
and you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour Council, a Labour Council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. Meanwhile, people could see how more choice was improving their lives in other ways. Clothes were getting cheaper. Ordinary people could go on holiday abroad. More supermarkets were opening. Leicester has opened the first supermarket where you can very nearly drive up to the counter. The ticket at the barrier admits the customer to the car park, which is part of the premises, so there's nothing to worry about. As for the supermarket itself, it's got everything, and every brand from A to X. The new Tesco in Leicester in 1961. So why not, the logic went, give people more choice over the things that the state had provided? Wouldn't competition drive up standards? and bring about more innovation. That was the belief behind John Major's decision to privatise British Rail. There were two or three things going on. First of all, there was the idea that British Rail was inefficient, it was state-owned, it uh, you know, was not kind of commercially driven and so on, which, you know, I can come to later, was completely false notion. Christian Walmar is a transport journalist and the author of British Rail, A New History. There was also the idea that essentially services shouldn't be in the public sector, you know, that you know, it wasn't the job of the public sector, even though railways were a monopoly, even though Mrs Thatcher had uh, resiled from uh, privatising it because she realised that the railways were quite popular and despite the image of British Rail in the press, actually people quite liked British Rail. But then the other idea was that, you know, this was a monopoly, state-owned provider and people needed more choice. And the great example of that is Roger Freeman, now Lord Freeman, who was rail minister at the time, saying, well, maybe under privatisation we could have trains for uh, the business people and other trains for their secretaries. <laughs> the idea that you'd have kind of, you know, completely different services for, for the minions and kind of, you know, really proper express services for the captains of industry, that was, you know, coloured the thinking. I can't say it was the only reason why they went for privatisation, but they, they liked that idea, you know, given choice, the red train or the green train, you know, let they compete with each other, despite the fact that, you know, on-rail competition is uh, a priori very difficult. We are sorry to announce that the 1845 Greater Anglia service to Southend Central is delayed by approximately 35 minutes. This is due to earlier overrunning engineering work at Raynham. Greater Anglia apologises for this delay. So how was competition going to work, given that there are limits to how many trains can run on a railway track? It was just the notion that, you know, this was a monopoly supplier and therefore that was a bad thing. Even though the railways really lend themselves to a monopoly supplier because there is only one set of tracks, because it's very difficult for one train to overtake another. But the Tory government at the time, led by John Major, thought that, you know, if you offered people the chance to take a different type of service, that type of competition would drive down the fares or, you know, improve the services and people would kind of rationally choose between between the two. And to some extent, there was, that, there was some uh, of that when 
For example, out of Euston, you had very slow services that end up in sort of crew run by one company and neighbours changed several times. And then you have the fast trains run by Virgin and, and now Avanti, which will take you up to crew in about two hours. And so there has been an element of choice there. Now, that could have happened under a monopoly provider. You could say you have the slow train that stops at all sorts of stops on the way, and you can have the faster train that that doesn't, and you can make one more expensive or cheaper. But So they thought that if you had different companies competing for the passengers to travel between one place and another, you could offer some measure of choice. But there's not many lines on which you can do that. There's not many the capacity on many lines to do that. There's not the alternative routes to to provide and so on. But this is a a legacy, actually, of the old railway companies that originally did compete very much with each other. So, for example, you know, a place like Canterbury has two stations because they were run by different companies. Uh, You can get to Exeter from London, either from Waterloo or Paddington. So in Birmingham, you've got kind of three options, as it were, to to get from uh, uh, London. So there was was a a sort of legacy of occasionally alternative routes that you could then give the contract to, to different companies who could then sort of compete with each other. So competition played a big role in the rationale for privatisation. But so did nostalgia for an era where buccaneering companies would create new demand by outcompeting each other. I wonder if that same instinct to break free of the rules and let the market do its thing surfaced again when Brexiteers wanted to leave this straitjacket of the EU and the rules that were tying British innovation down. Still, there's a school of thought in public policy which says that more choice isn't necessarily a good thing. It may not make people feel empowered. Sometimes it doesn't drive up standards through competition. The economist George Lowenstein wrote a paper 20 years ago in which he questioned the notion that more choice inevitably led to better outcomes. He said, do new choices provide competition that lowers price or improves quality? Or do they give people new options that they don't feel competent to evaluate? When people are forced to make decisions for which they lack the requisite expertise, the consequences are likely to be lost time, bad choices, anxiety and self-recrimination. In 1988, the government introduced a law that gave parents the right to say which school they wanted their child to go to. It wasn't really school choice, because obviously not everyone could get the school they wanted. Still, just as with trains, the government hoped that schools would offer different sorts of education, by specialising, belonging to a particular faith, or offering a particular ethos. But are parents happier when they get more choice? I talked to the economist Avik Bhattacharya, whose doctorate compared England with Scotland, where kids are generally assigned to a school rather than choosing one. In Scotland, the default assumption is that you attend your catchment school, usually your nearest school. However, if you want to apply to a different school, you can make what's called a placing request. This is done by about 13, 14% of, of families. So you have to kind of actively opt into choice, essentially write to the local authority and say, I would like to go to a different school. The vast majority of parents say that they would like to have at least some control over the school that their children uh, attends. 
Although what they specifically mean by that is, is rather nuanced. And in practice, in many cases, what it is, is just the, the right to refuse. It's not wanting to feel like you're trapped into just having to take whatever you're given. So what I found is that English parents and Scottish parents were equally likely to say that they had enough choice. And to the contrary, English parents were more likely to be stressed and anxious and overwhelmed. Whereas Scottish parents generally endorsed the system that they had, they felt that they had enough by being able to opt out if they felt they needed to. What I found was that parents who looked at more schools, who did more research, were more likely to say that they found the whole thing stressful and anxiety provoking and to worry about whether they'd made the right choice. Now, obviously, that might be that the the sorts of parents who are inclined to worry about these sorts of things are more likely to do research. The causal reaction could go in both ways. But the key thing is that those sorts of parents were more likely to be in England. Parents in England are more encouraged to do deep research and spend more time thinking about it and engaging with the decision. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Competition was also introduced into the NHS. Here, it wasn't about patients choosing the best service. The idea that one NHS service might be better than another is taboo, even if we know that some areas and hospitals do better than others. The thought of sick people competing for the best doctors is rightly anathema to most people. Patient choice in the NHS, when it exists, is designed to speed up access to treatment rather than force people to evaluate the merits of different hospitals or doctors. So in the NHS, competition meant giving NHS managers the ability to choose between different providers. John Appleby of the Nuffield Trust explains how it worked. How do you in the public service introduce incentives for a public service to try and be efficient, to do the best it can, to improve quality and so on, if you don't have competition? So the idea was to introduce some sort of internal market, some fake competition. And so you set up some organised state organisations with the money but no services. And you've got some other organisations, largely the NHS, with services but no money. And then they have to <laughs> do a deal. And the groups with the money, the clinical commissioning groups, would buy healthcare. This is the idea. This is in theory. Buy healthcare from, you know... Uh, hospitals and providers who they thought could provide the best deal. And, I mean, that has now dribbled to a close 25, 30 years later. The research, such as it is, on whether that has actually improved healthcare for patients is relatively thin. 
it's taken economists with some high-powered econometrics to squeeze out even some smallest benefit from that arrangement. Um, so it wasn't the panacea that people thought it was. And yet it absorbed a huge amount of time, management energy, which could have been used, you know, perhaps to better effect. When I talked to experts on the NHS, one theme came up repeatedly. Reform for reform's sake hadn't worked. If there's one thing it should let go of, it's that there is one lever. There's one big idea out there that we haven't discovered yet down the back of the sofa, even though we've been rummaging around there for the last 60, 70 years, that will somehow have some huge impact and, and radical change on that, that will, in the end, improve people's health and their healthcare experience. My experience is that there isn't. There isn't one big idea out there. Certainly the history of the NHS and other healthcare systems in terms of improving the quality of care for patients and improving the value for money of delivering that care for every pound we spend has been a sort of long-run, marginal, incremental effort. Over time, the NHS has started to perform more and more surgical operations as day cases. And we've got examples now of people having hip operations in one day, not staying overnight, going in, having their hip done and going home again in one day. So now I think it's, it's approaching 65, 70% of all surgical operations are day cases. Not long ago, it was 10, 15%. Mm. So what does that mean? It, for patients, it means you don't have to spend time in hospitals, which, you know, frankly, are dangerous places full of illness and diseases. Mm. And people don't like staying there. So you get out quickly. The surgical techniques used have improved vastly. So, the, the, you know, the wounds that are left are minute. The anaesthetics that are used are often local, not general. They have less impact on people's bodies and so on. So there are lots of benefits of patients. And for the NHS and, in a sense, the taxpayer, it's meant that we don't need so many beds. We can treat more people for the mm. equipment we have, and it costs less. But that has taken 30 years, <laughs> and it wasn't a minister standing up with a big plan saying, we are going to switch to day cases tomorrow. What it took was medical advances. Some of it comes down to tax. How much of it are we willing to pay for a better NHS? Chris Hamm of the King's Fund think tank told me... Sometimes the NHS is seen as a priority and gets more than other services, and other times it doesn't. And as long as that persists, we're going to be caught in this bind, really, of valuing the NHS very, very highly, as all the opinion polls show, but at the same time being frustrated because despite its best endeavours and the work of the million-plus people who work in the NHS, it can never quite fulfil our expectations of... It. And I think that fundamentally that's both a political challenge for the government of the day. It's a societal challenge. How much are we prepared to pay as citizens through our taxation to fund the NHS to the level where it will meet our expectations more effectively? Giving people and managers more choice about public services hasn't generated the breakthrough that politicians hoped it would. So how good are we at making choices? I wanted to understand how our brains react when we're confronted with a lot of choice. People like to think that they make decisions based on rational, that's a loaded term, but on, you know, that they'll carefully weigh up evidence and costs and benefits and then they'll decide something. And that's really not how any of us decide things. We use a lot of other reference points and shortcuts to try and help us look at things. 
Ali Goldsworthy is a senior research associate at the University of Cambridge, led which, and was deputy chair of the Lib Dems when the party was in coalition government. So one of the unusual outcomes of that is that when you get too much information, you start to rely on how your brain categorises things much more. And as a consequence, that means that actually you're less likely to use some of the information that comes to you to help decide the positions you're going to take than than more likely where maybe experts would be helping to to filter that through. That's not to say you shouldn't have good information that's out there. Of course, that can be very helpful, but it can be a very unexpected consequence of there being too much information is actually we can become a bit more polarised. So that's because the sheer amount of information hitting our brains is just so overwhelming that we need to develop new strategies to deal with it. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the process basically is that, you know, you see information and then you think, oh my God, how do I make sense of this? I want to categorise this. And our brains evolved this way. If you think about, you know, like, oh, is this somebody a predator or not a predator? Are they safe for me to go? Do I need to hide or not? You know, and our brains haven't haven't evolved. So you see something and then you categorise it and then you make a judgment on whether it's it's like you or whether it's not like you. And you go from there. So you begin to increasingly rely on that categorization to make judgments on on how you do things. There are, of course, environments and circumstances where that is less likely to be the case. But as a, a general trend, a, an overwhelm of information, like when you're drinking from the fire hose, that feeling of that where you just don't know how to cope and how to make sense of things, that's your brain starting to rely on those, those categories. We're beginning to understand that large amounts of choice can have polarizing effects when it comes to politics. When people can find millions of competing views online, their instinct is to seek out a fellow tribe of people whom they feel comfortable with. There's a huge correlation or relationship between people who served under Pétain in World War One and those who did not, about how likely they were to be supporters of the Vichy regime as a consequence and, in effect, to be Nazi collaborators. And that shows how long some of those group dynamics and allies to leadership that can come about, you know, in a pre-social media world or or post-social media world, how strong they are in getting people to do things that really they probably are, are hugely not proud of and actually, you know, are not, for example, policies that they would individually sign up to in any way at all. There's a, a very interesting study that was done in France, actually, given the, the context of this podcast, about how people continue to ally to, to Vichy and tolerate some of the truly horrendous stuff that went on under the Vichy regime because they had served under him in Verdun. And there was a huge, you know, France is not very good at reckoning with this part of its history. And thinking about some of the other ways in which social media changes and speeds up the human instincts and reactions that we have. Anyone who states a political view on social media can be instantly challenged about it. What effect does that have on the way we react? Yeah, well, it can have effects on the way, and it doesn't even need to be a political view, right? So once politics extends into other areas, and you, and that's when polarization sets in, that you can, um, it can, it can lead to people presuming you hold certain views from saying something else. So, say I said I was quinoa eating 
um, and I really liked quinoa, then suddenly that might trigger a bunch of other identities or people will presume I held certain political views because I said that. Or if I, I say, said I owned guns, you know, or um, the type of car that I drove, all of those things can trigger stuff well beyond politics. And that's actually the point when polarisation begins to get a bit tricky and a bit a bit dangerous when those spillover effects happen and they stop you seeing people they were but social media what it can do is in effect it mutes the middle and it amplifies the extremes so what you end up seeing because of the way some of their algorithms for both engagement and for monetization reasons work is they're more likely to show you content that provokes a strong reaction. So basically we, we look for cognitive shortcuts all the time don't we because this overwhelming stream of information from which it seems we're required to choose. Yeah that's exactly what happens and those cognitive shortcuts you know they can stand us in really good stead right like it's not a bad thing that it helps us well and helps us recognize whether things are good or bad or like us or or not you know like it's they're not all bad but the world the 21st century world that we're living in is creating an environment where they are more likely to be triggered and where our group identities are more likely to be triggered and is dreadful like truly dreadful at trying to find ways to de-escalate that and to try and offset some of the dynamics that are being triggered by by social media in effect and the more polarised we are, the harder it's going to be to find a consensus about how to make the NHS, schools and housing better. Defending our own hard-won positions becomes easier than trying to thrash out a way forward with opponents who seem more and more unreasonable. We dig in because it's less exhausting. We hang on until things get better. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. British Stoicism is a quality we've talked about a lot in this series, but sometimes Stoicism is just another word for hopelessness, for the feeling that things are bad and probably getting worse, but you've got no power to do anything about it, so you might as well make the best of a bad job. Looking the problems in the NHS in the face and confronting them is hard, as palliative care doctor Rachel Clark told me. We kind of close our eyes and ears to the worst that can happen for very understandable psychological reasons. And it's only when someone is unlucky enough to need absolutely first-class health care and instead they find themselves waiting 16 hours for an ambulance to get to their granny who's fallen down the stairs and broken her hip and is lying on the floor in agony. That's when they realise 
something terrible is going wrong with our society. This this should not be the case. We are a rich enough country to provide high quality healthcare for everybody. And in a way, right now, the system is failing in plain sight, but we're choosing not to see it. We lost faith in the ability of local councils to provide decent housing, but we didn't think about the consequences of selling off their public assets and giving the Treasury most of the money. We've held on to the idea that grammar schools are a tool of social mobility, even though the stats tell us they're not. We had a state church that didn't recognise how important women were to keeping it going. And we have a new elite class, rich in property and social capital, who have little in common with the old British upper class, but we're still attached to the institutions and rituals they keep alive. And we prize our collective memories of the Second World War when we felt we were at our best. Yet those memories are often very unreliable. Historian Kasia Tomashevich told me that as the British Empire broke up, our memories of the Second World War turned inwards. I guess the kind of processes of decolonization in the 1950s and then how we used the war story then have been so absolute that Britain has kind of really forgotten its own role as the head of a global empire in the 1940s, which is just absolutely bizarre. And it's so historically inaccurate when we think about it. It's interesting that you kind of mentioned these kind of like global links. So my grandmother, she was born kind of on the Polish I guess, Ukrainian border. Her father was murdered by the kind of Stalin police as they kind of advanced towards Poland. She then ended up in a in a camp in uh, Kyrgyzstan. She then went to various different places, Iraq, Tanzania, because of the role that Britain inhabited as this kind of, you know, she used those kind of links as a way to seek refuge and safety. She found her brother who was in the, who was in the kind of Polish Free Army and then ended up in Southampton. So what I'm trying to get at here is that the world was hugely connected within a kind of within a framework of empire during that time in a way that is really hard actually for us to understand now even in our globalized world Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is the thing is that our actual understanding of the Second World War is seriously, not seriously decreasing. I don't want to say that it's like, you know, it's it's kind of fallen off a hill. But how we actually make sense of the Second World War has changed so much. So if you think about the war generation, they would know how much a pint of beer was, and also the name of a specific plane or battalion or whatever. The kind of generation that came after kind of grew up in the 60s and 70s might not know how much a pint of beer cost in the 1940s, but they would know the kind of of names of, of planes or battles or whatever. My generation wouldn't know how much a pint of beer cost or a specific regiment or type of plane. And I mentioned this beer analogy because actually we have such little understanding of what life was like in the 1940s, but we just think we do because we've seen films, we've watched Dad's Army on repeat for hundreds of years, what feels like hundreds of years. So we've got this really strong sense that we know exactly what happened during the Second World War. We have really no idea. We're a deeply nostalgic nation. It's one of the things people appreciate about Britain. But the values we think we have, an NHS free at the point of use, a state church that somehow represents everyone, schools that enable anyone to reach their potential, are no longer reflected in reality. And if we're going to change that, we need to let go of the myths that console us. We need to let go of the broken promise of jam tomorrow. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for joining me for this final episode of Jam Tomorrow. Jam Tomorrow was written and presented by Ros Taylor 
The producer was me, Jay Bailey. Music was by Dubstar, with artwork by James Parrott. Additional voiceover work was by Imogen Robertson. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The home intelligence reports featured in this podcast are now held in the National Archives and are available on the MOI Digital website. Jam Tomorrow is a Podmasters production.